VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off again today. Uh, we hope to have him back real soon. Um, well, what an interesting conversation we had yesterday with uh, our many, many listeners. Um, we started to get a picture of what these Scotiabank closures are going to mean, especially in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, among the banks that are closing, and we didn't get a full uh, number or picture, but uh, ones that we were able to confirm include Whitburn, Grand Bank, Burgio, Bonavista, and Twillingate, um, with far-reaching impacts, of course, to those living and doing business in those communities. Uh, municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador is meeting this week for their annual general meeting, and they expect it will be a topic of discussion. Uh, because Federal Minister of Rural Economic Development Goody Hutchings uh, will be there and she will likely get an earful this weekend when it comes to that particular issue. We spoke to a number of mayors, including Bonavista Mayor John Norman, who was very passionate about the impact that's going to have in his community. Um, we spoke with Rex Matthews, the mayor of Grand Bank, again uh, indicating that this is going to have a significant impact. And one of the things that Rex Matthews uh, told me yesterday Yesterday was that okay so the bank in Grand Bank closes uh, people who continue to use that particular uh, banking service are going to have to travel to Marystown to do face-to-face -face banking and guess where they're going to spend their dollars if they're making the trip to Marystown good for Marystown not so good for Grand Bank uh, so that is one of many concerns being raised. And we've seen these, these kinds of this, this erosion, I suppose, of services in smaller communities for decades now, since the moratorium. Um, uh, we heard about it on Belle Island. We heard about it on Fogo Island. We've heard about it in numerous communities. Well, how are these communities coping now? And how are they uh, striving to survive and stay viable in the wake of some of these uh, very essential services being uh, cut back? Well, um, I'd like to hear from you and see how that affects you and your community or how uh, your community has found ways around it. And some people have said, you know, well, you know, entice another bank into your community. That's not always easy, as you know, because they're, what is it, the big five, they call them? Um, if one is doing it, the fear is that the rest are going to do the same. And uh, we've seen uh, bank closures throughout uh, the province, not just in rural communities, but uh, here in St. John's as well. If you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, the audit report on Memorial University has uh, finally been released publicly. It was presented to the House of Assembly last week. No real big surprises there. Uh, Munn has already accepted all eight of the AG's recommendations on oversight and policies surrounding spending practices. And uh, what the AG found was, in fact, that there was very little oversight or policies surrounding spending practices. So that's how you get little things like um, 
uh, $1,792 paid for custom-made chocolates that would be uh, presented as gifts. Um, some of the highest administrative salaries per student um, Memorial has compared to other universities. Uh, the university's uh, compensation policies were either non-existent or outdated, and nearly a third of the school's expenses decided by its president and not reviewed by the Board of Regents. Uh, so oh, the oversight is going to be uh, put there. Um, but among some of the uh, expenses of the former president, as I indicated, close to $2,000 for custom-made chocolate, uh, $2,700 for a desk and chair for the former president's home, $598 for a limousine service. I mean, uh, some might argue, well, those are legitimate expenses, but the president was already getting um, a, quite a good salary. Uh, so why would these added expenses be charged to the university instead of, you know, out of her own um, uh, salary? Uh, the former president also incurred close to $10,000 in expenses for a 24-day province-wide tour visiting various university facilities, and we spoke with her about that soon after she was uh, appointed to the position. Among the costs reimbursed during that trip was $652 for an oil change and tire replacement, even though she received a monthly car allowance of $1,000 that included car maintenance. The AG found there was a gap in policies and processes that led to a lack of oversight on administrative costs. And uh, curiously, and we were talking about this in the newsroom a short while ago, um, bonuses paid to executives at Secor and the Genesis Center outlined in the report but redacted for some reason. Now, this is uh, public funds, so um, why wouldn't we be allowed to see that kind of thing? Anyway, we've asked. Uh, we'll see what kind of a response we'll get. Well, ride-sharing services finally will be allowed to operate in this province thanks to legislative changes that will be introduced in the fall sitting of the House. Ride-sharing, of course, incredibly popular. There's been a, a big call for ride-sharing services to be established here in Newfoundland and Labrador for some time now. Uh, it's been established in most major cities throughout North America for quite some time, uh, but legislation and legislative jurisdiction uh, arguments over that has prevented the service from becoming established here. Mayor Danny Breen applauding that, saying, you know, uh, it doesn't make sense to make a change to, let's say, the City of St. John's Act to um, make those changes when you have nearby Mount Pearl that would have to rely, rely on a different legislative process or different regulations. So uh, it shouldn't be on municipalities. It should be a wide-ranging uh, legislative, provincial legislative uh, change. So that is in the works now, and if passed, should allow ride-sharing services. Some questions remain about uh, how it all works because it's uh, new to us here. Uh, but most people uh, are applauding the move, especially in light of uh, the recent crunch experienced in taxi services in this area. What are your thoughts? Why don't you give us a call? Well, we have uh, quite a few calls already on the line, and we're going to uh, start it this morning with uh, Jim. Hello, Jim. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Very well, thank you. That's good. What's on your mind? Well, uh I wanted to call about the uh, out-of-control spending at Memorial University. 
Um, I'm uh, formerly uh, chair of the Public Accounts Committee when I was in the opposition from 2011 to 2015. Uh, we had uh, 20 hearings uh, over that four-year period, five hearings a year. That compared to one hearing in the previous eight years under the Williams government, they, they basically did nothing with public accounts. But we we did uh, hearings into Auditor General's findings of places like the Rodican Pellet Plant, uh, Marble Mountain uh, Ski Slope, um, and uh, the uh, hangars out in Gander where uh, people were storing their uh, their uh, boats and uh, recreational vehicles and leaving the government aircraft out, out in the weather while they were using up storage space that they shouldn't have been doing. When it came to Memorial University, Memorial was the only entity that refused to come before the Public Accounts Committee. And the numbers that we were looking at then, in, in particularly in the case of their unfunded pension liability, were enormous. Uh, what we have today looks bad, but those that's the small potatoes compared to what, what we were looking at back uh, seven or eight years ago. Uh, the Public Accounts Committee is made up of four government members and three opposition members, so the government controls the vote. Uh, usually we issue a letter to the to the entity, whoever they happen to be, say the Auditor General has certain findings, we want you to come before the committee and explain yourself. Memorial University stood back and said, no, we have academic freedom, we don't have to account for this uh, our response was you may have academic freedom, but you're taking the people's money and you, you are financially obligated and you need to come and, and explain why your spending is so uh, uh, out of control as the Auditor General found at that time. Um, we, uh, they refused to come. I met with the president at Memorial University uh, to explain to him that we, this is not about academic freedom. This is about the, the uh, uh, spending at Memorial University. And the biggest issue was the unfunded pension liability, which was absolutely enormous. Uh, it was uh, somewhere in the hundreds of millions of dollars that the taxpayers would have to cough up for the pensions that the Memorial University would be obligated to pay. They refused to come. I attempted to have a vote on the committee to have uh, the House of Assembly, bring it before the House of Assembly to compel them to come, and the government members voted it down. There were four government members at that time. They had the majority, and they refused to compel Memorial University to come before the committee and explain their financial uh, irregularities or short, shortcomings that the Auditor General found at that time. So to me, it's no surprise that this has been uncovered now because this is uh, when you have no financial accountability, then people do as they please, and we can see what's happened to taxpayers' money all over again. I should say, Jim, I never gave your full name, Jim Bennett, of course, um, former member for St. Barb. Um, so does any of this surprise you, what came out in this AG report? No, this uh, this doesn't surprise me whatsoever. This is, uh, this, is the, uh, this is almost like an audit of the fringe benefits and some of the salaries. But I think that Memorial University needs to, to be, uh, on the financial side, a fully open book for the people of the province to see where our money is going. It's our university, and yes, I, I, I endorse academic freedom clearly, but we have uh, you know, uh, staff who are being paid way above what the market indicates they should be paid. Now we see these fringe benefits uh, that uh, have been paid and, and vehicle expenses that were looks like is a, is a, a double uh, amount because uh, somebody's been claiming something that's already being uh, compensated for. Back in the days when we, uh, when I served on a public accounts committee, 
uh, and it's a paid position. The, public, the chair of the Public Accounts Committee back then was paid $13,000 over and above the MHA salary, and the government uh, uh, deputy chair was paid $10,000 over and above the regular MHA salary. So somebody is being paid to chair public accounts even if they're doing nothing, and also to vice chair public accounts even if they're doing nothing. And I, I don't see the financial accountability isn't being done at that level. So this really isn't a government issue. It's a public accounts issue. and they, they need to be on the ball and chase down Memorial University and anybody else who's, uh, who's spending public money. If you, if you take the public money, you have to be accountable to the public for that money. And this is not happening, and it's not a surprise. So I, I would really like to see the Public Accounts Committee uh, wake up, uh, get back in, in form, and call on Memorial University to come before them and explain this. It's not enough to say, Oh, we're going to put in place controls. We're going to do better. We're going to accept your your recommendations. If they haven't done so in the past, and there's no public exposure for this uh, wasteful spending and, and out of control spending, then why will they change? So, what was the purpose of the Board of Regents, let's say, for instance, if they weren't even informed of what uh, what the money was being spent on, or whether it was even being spent? You know, I'm. I can't say the Board of Regents to me is, is uh, less of an economic um, uh, monitor and, and more of a, an overview of what the university is doing at large. But there's uh, uh, most people don't know uh, essentially uh, uh, how uh, how cushy a position you can have if you're a tenured profession, uh, uh, professor at Memorial University. You, know, you have you teach three classes a week. That's three hours per class times three, which is nine hours a week. Now you have to prepare, so it's not just nine hours a week. You have student time and so on. You have 13 weeks per semester and two semesters per year, so that's 26 semesters at uh, nine hours a week of teaching time plus whatever else you need. So you get four months off in the summer, and every seventh year you get a sabbatical, so you get a full year off. And, and when I had this discussion with members at the committee, they were absolutely flabbergasted. If you turn it into the hourly rate, now you see how much we're actually paying for our uh, higher education. Uh, if, if it's the market, so be it. We have to pay that. But now we learn today that on the administrative side, Memorial University has been paying people way above the market rate across Canada. And to me, that's simply because of, of a lack of controls and a lack of oversight. And they, I think they should go before the Public Accounts Committee and explain their misspending. Just to play devil's advocate now, because of, uh, uh, you know, Memorial University's uh, geographical position and that sort of thing, could it not be argued that you might have to pay over the market just to attract the best kind of, you know, uh, candidates? Um, well, if that, in fact, is the case, then let them come forward and explain that. Let them fully expose themselves instead of saying, we're not going to answer to you. We're not going to come before the public accounts committee. We're not going to give you any answers because we think we're independent and we're autonomous. They are independent and autonomous academically. But if you're taking the people's money, then you owe to the people an explanation of where that money is going. And if they're way over market, then uh, first of all, I don't believe 
that uh, they had to pay more than the market rate. That the you know personally, I think anything that's in the range of Atlantic Canada is uh, is quite acceptable. Whatever that range happens to be, um, maybe nationally it's a higher number. But there are lots of people who would love to come and have a good job at Memorial University from different parts of this country and from different parts of this world. And, and to me, Newfoundland and Labrador is, is becoming a better place to live day after day when we look around the globe. And, and we should be promoting the lifestyle advantages of living here. And uh, I think we have a lot to offer. So the bottom line is that Memorial University has never been accountable. They're not accountable today. And the Auditor General keeps on covering these misspendings uh, when uh, the reviews are done. And uh, they don't come before the Public Accounts Committee or anybody else and explain why and how. And uh, the the Public Accounts Committee, after they do a review, often puts in the place recommendations that they would like to see the entity do. You know, when we did the erotic pellet plant, for example, we had to call them back a second time because they came unprepared. Uh, I wasn't at all impressed. And we learned in that hearing that 85% of the money had been advanced to them before a business plan was submitted. So you know, these things are absolutely um, abominable to me when you're looking at public spending. And I came from uh, away from uh, four years of public accounts and government with a, a feeling that pretty much all the bad stuff you hear about the financial misspending from all governments tends to be true, and you don't hear half of it. So I think this is an opportunity for, for the public accounts committee to call on Memorial University to let's have a hearing. You send down your people who are going to explain to us how and why this happened and then what recommendations the public accounts committee, that the people of the province are paying to operate, um, what recommendations the public accounts committee wants to put in place. So, but back to the question of autonomy, though. Um, so what does autonomy actually mean and, and how is it applied? Well, if it's academic uh, autonomy, then they can teach whatever they want, and that's fine. So, and they 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 put together their post-secondary education side, and they can have grad students do whatever they like. If they want to have free speech on campus, if they want to have demonstrations for or against or whatever, the the uh, province or the government doesn't interfere with what the goings on in the university. But the one who's writing the check, which is the government, which really is the taxpayers of this province. I think are entitled to know where's the money going, what are we getting for, and what should we be getting for, and what are you doing to have the proper financial controls in place. Jim Bennett, really appreciate your perspective on this this morning. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. You have a good day. You too. Speak to you, Linda. Bye-bye. Yeah. Right, yeah, bye. Bye. Uh, that is uh, former MHA uh, Jim Bennett, former chair of the Public Accounts Committee, with his thoughts on the MUN audit. Well, what do you think? Give us a call. Here are the numbers to do so. And we are back. We're going to go now to Rodney. You're on the air. Hi, Rodney. Hi, Linda. What's on your mind this morning? Uh I there about a week, two weeks ago, uh, Linda. Uh, my mother-in-law, she's in the seniors complex, uh, just in the west end of St. John's here. Uh, she had a worker come in her room one evening, and uh, he started touching her privates and and started kissing her, putting his tongue down her throat. Oh, my goodness. Were, okay, were, now, are the police involved? It took, the, took our police 25 hours to get down. They say she wasn't a priority. 
I've been calling our priest. I've been calling the Minister of Health, but nobody wants. Yeah, there's no justice here in our city anymore for the innocent. Uh, they're putting the mother-in-law through, putting the blame on her more or less instead of doing the right thing. The person that's running that home uh, should be removed from that home because he never bothered phone the police at the time when this all happened. He turned around and sent that person home. So I'm asking for an investigation into that gentleman that's running that place, why he done what he done, and... You know, it, like 25 hours, and our premier, nobody will give us an update why it took so long. They say the mother-in-law wasn't a priority. Uh, it was a priority for the premier to put 15 cars. Hello? Hello? Okay, we appear to have lost... Uh Rodney for some reason um, oh and he's gone alright we uh, will see if we can get uh, Rodney back at some point we're going to go now to uh, Paul Lane hello Paul good morning Linda how are you this morning I'm good how are you I'm doing well uh, just want to say first of all I am uh, was uh, uh, glad to hear my former colleague Jim Bennett uh, I'm with you just before uh, the break and uh, I could uh, pretty much say ditto to uh, Everything that he said, uh, I will add a few thoughts of my own, but Jim is right on the mark as far as I'm concerned as it relates to uh, uh, Memorial University and, of course, the scathing report that just came out from the Auditor General. Uh, I'm not surprised either, uh, to be honest, and I do agree with Jim that um, certainly the Public Accounts uh, Committee, um, which from what I can gather, I, I'm, I don't want to uh, put out false information, but I haven't heard of too much happening uh, as of late as it relates to the Public Accounts uh, Committee. Uh, I'm not a member of it, uh, but I haven't heard of uh, too many meetings, if any, uh, uh, in any time uh, recently, to be honest with you. So I'm not quite sure what they're up to, but uh, if they haven't been meeting, then this is certainly one that they should be meeting on, for sure. Um, and uh, Mon should be compelled uh, to participate, and uh, if they don't have to participate, uh, if they cannot be compelled, then uh, if we need to make a legislative change in the House Assembly to compel them, then that's what we need to do. And it's quite possible that we can't compel them because it was only uh, only for the fact that the government, I will give the government credit on this one, that it was only about a year or so ago that the government brought in legislation that compelled them to cooperate with the Auditor General. Prior to that, uh, they basically had the right to uh, send the Auditor General packing, say you're not coming in here, or if she did come in um, and ask for certain documents, they could deny her. And it was only legislative change that we passed in the House Assembly about a year or so ago that allowed this to even happen, which is shocking in itself. Well, indeed, what, what has gone on in the past, one can only speculate. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, this is more than just one. And, you know, it's very easy now for everybody to, um, you know, to gang up on the uh, former president of Mon. And look, rightfully so. Uh, you know, she, she definitely needs to be accountable for her actions. I'm not suggesting otherwise. Uh, but this is a systemic problem. It's been going on for years. And there's more people involved in this than just the president. And when you think about that, this is the our institute 
pursuit of higher learning, and how dare we even have the gall to ask what's going on? And now the people who supposedly, uh, you know, um, are, are there and supposedly running the place to find out that they don't have basic HR policies or procedures. They don't know how money is being spent. They don't even know who's responsible for doing certain roles uh, within uh, the, the university. Uh, we've seen, we, we heard about, I think it was $65,000 spent at Harlow, uh, at Harlow on uh, a consultant and never even got a, a report at the end. I mean, what's going on there is absolutely uh, maddening as uh, as a taxpayer. So uh, there has to be more accountability. And that brings me to really the point I wanted to call in about. Uh, I've been calling on the government uh, during the budgetary debates now for the last number of years. I've been calling on the Minister of Finance and the government to put a uh, mechanism in place for all agencies, boards, commissions, healthcare authorities, Memorial University, and so on, similar to what we have for core government departments as it relates to budget estimates process. And basically for those people who don't know, in addition to the banter that you see back and forth in the House Assembly when the budget is on the go, one of the most valuable parts that happen in the budgetary process is called estimates. And that basically is where there, uh, where there is time uh, allotted for each department where the minister would come into the House Assembly. He would have all of his senior staff and so on with him on one side. And up the, on the opposite side, there would be a committee uh, made up of uh, members of uh, the government and the opposition, the NDP, and the independents are able to participate as well. And we get to question the, the minister line by line by line of his budget or her budget uh, for their department. And we do that with all departments. Now, here's here, here's one for you, and this, this will probably blow people's minds. During that process, I'm going to use the Department of uh, Health and Community Services just as an example. So when we're doing the budgetary process for the Department of Health and we're going line by line, we'll go to minister's office. And there will literally be a line there for photocopying expenses. That's how, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's where we, we, we delve deep into it, okay? So here's a line for the minister's office for, uh, you know, for, for expenses for photocopying. And someone will say, Minister, um, last year you budgeted $10,000 for photocopying, but you spent fifteen. Why did you spend, why the overrun? Why did you spend $5,000 more on photocopying? Okay, fair enough question, but small potatoes. So at the same time that we're questioning that expenditure, we're passing over a line in that budget that says transfer to health authorities, $3 billion, and moving on, no questions asked. So we're going to question photocopying in the minister's office and zero questions on a $3 billion transfer to the health authorities. So we're going to spend $3 billion. We have no idea how it's being spent. We know it's being spent by the health authorities. We know it's paying for nurses and doctors and emergency departments and tests and surgeries and supplies and all that. You know, you know, we, you know we all know that. But in terms of getting an understanding of exactly how that money is being spent, spent on what, what consultants are being used, what, you know, what, what is the staffing ratios like, are we getting good value for money, and so on. Not one question, zero, but we'll but we will question photocopying expenses. So that just goes to show um, how inadequate the system is. So I've been calling on the government to put a mechanism in place 
for agencies, boards, commissions, and so on, and health authorities, and and, and College of North Atlantic, Mon, and Liquor Corporation, Nalcor, Oilco, uh, Hydro, where we would be doing line-by-line examinations of their budgets. And uh, a couple of years ago, the Minister of Finance stood up in the House Assembly and said, the member from Mount Pearl Southlands is going to be very pleased today because I'm going to move forward with, with his suggestion that we're going to do this. And guess what? Two years later, going on three years, never did And so that's the kind of thing that people need to understand. We talk about financial accountability and responsibility that we have, when you think about it, when you think about the the budget, which like over $8 billion taxpayers' money year over year in, in a budget, and the vast majority, the vast majority of that money is funneling through government agencies, boards, commissions, not core government departments. And we're spending all this time every year on a budgetary process, a big debate and estimates and everything, drilling down into the spending in the minister's office and in these core departments when the bulk of the money is over here in these ABCs and we're not questioning a thing. Something Where are we with um, with the? Uh, there was supposed to be an investigation into agencies, boards, and commissions, was there not? There was supposed to be some kind of a, a review or a probe. I don't know how to term it. Review, I suppose. Where are we with that process? Uh, I, I haven't heard anything about it. I haven't heard. I haven't heard a sound uh, about any probe into any of that. I mean, the only probing that goes into ABCs is periodically the auditor general will you know pick a particular entity i mean i i was i i lobbied uh i i lobbied three full-time and one part-time auditor general and it took six years of lobbying uh all of them before they finally went into nalcor and we saw what i expected there um and um but but other than that uh, you know uh, we're you know the other general can only do so can only do so much but the reality of it is is that this is millions billions of taxpayers dollars going through all these entities and we just don't have in my view, we don't have appropriate oversight so you know we, we do have a committee as Jim talked about public accounts that could and should be much more active in terms of calling out these agencies when the Auditor General does her, or, well, in this case it's her, could be him, but does their work um, to, to question findings and so on. But above and beyond that, year over year over year, they have budgets, they're spending, you know, millions, billions of taxpayers' dollars, and we don't have any mechanism currently in place where anyone, any elected person, I mean, they do have, you know, boards that are supposedly running these places, but there's no mechanism currently where we have elected people, by, you know, elected by the people that are scrutinizing their budgets and finding out, you know, how that money is being spent. And that goes for all of them. It goes for, like I say, it goes for MON, it goes for health authorities, it goes for College of North Atlantic, it goes for Oil Co., it goes for Hydro, it goes for the, uh, the Liquor Corporation. I mean, the Liquor Corporation, yes, that brings in money. But just because, you know, and that, so, so that's a net benefit in terms of money coming in. But that doesn't mean, just because there's profits coming in, that doesn't mean that there's not money being wasted also. I'm not saying there is. I have no idea. But I'm just saying it could be, right? We can't just assume, oh, well, that's bringing in, that's bringing in uh, you know, revenues and, and profits, so therefore that one's fine. 
No boy. I mean, maybe we should be bringing in more profits. But we'll never know because we don't scrutinize any of the budgets. We don't know what's going on. I have no idea what's going on over there. No idea until the next time the Auditor General decides to go in and uh, and uh, do an audit. And then we'll find out, I guess, if you know things are working the way they're supposed to be working or they're not. And I'm yeah. not saying they're not working well. I'm saying I don't know. Yeah. And we should know. Is that well, our money? I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda, for the time. Really appreciate it. Alrighty. Have a great day. You too. Okay, bye. Bye bye. Your thoughts? Give us a call. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go to source before you get on the go. 5 30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. And we are back. We are going to go now to John. You're on the air. Hi, John. Good morning, uh, Miss Swain. How are you today, my dear? Good. How are you? Nice to hear your voice. I'm retired now, so I get to uh, uh, listen to you him a bit more than I did in my working life. Uh, I'd like to point out, uh, and thank you for taking my call. I'd like to point out to the people of the province, the full report you guys have on VOCM is quite a bit more than a few tidbits about chocolates and all this stuff. I will preface my comments by what uh, utter disrespect to Memorial and what the university was set up for in the first place. Most New Flanders know what that is. Uh, Miss Swain, the elephant in the room is the accountability once again. Uh, there never is accountability in a place with barely 500,000 people here, Muskrat Falls. Zero accountability. We went through that inquiry. I think that was, you can correct me if, you, if I'm wrong, five or six million dollars or more to conduct that. And the latest boondoggle uh, with, with the report that was released yesterday. Uh, I'd like to just add in something. I'm not accusing no, no one of anything. I'm a retired law enforcement officer. Section 122 of the Criminal Code of Canada. It's a breach of trust by a public official. And what that, what that says, it's a legislation that seeks to protect, the key word, Linda, is protect the public from in, misconduct of government officials. It criminalizes the actions of any official who carries out any fraudulent or dishonest conduct while in discharge of their official duties. That's on behalf of you and I, taxpayers. It applies, Ms. Swain, to all government officials, regardless of their rank or position. Legislation covers a wide range of actions, which include any fraudulent acts such as embezzlement, misappropriation of funds, or the mismanagement of public resources. So I really don't know where we're at. We, uh, the boondoggles go on and on. They've gone on since the 40s, 50s, 60s, and they continue. But there's never, as Mr. Lane just pointed out, I believe he did, there's never any, in my opinion, Miss Swain, any accountability. It just goes on. This it'll have a cycle for 15 minutes, and there'll be something else. There's never accountability. Uh, yeah, no, no follow up. No, it's just put out there. Everybody gets outraged, and then it uh, goes away. Yeah, it, uh, absolutely, Miss Swain. And as I noted before, the full report uh, you guys have it on the OSM. There's uh, quite a bit more to it than just. But the media throw out the chocolates and and the the tar and the all change. There's oh yeah, much, no, there's much, much much more to it. There's sometimes more, there's uh, certain things that sort of grab your attention initially. But I mean, we'll yeah. be talking about this report and and um, you know uh, dissecting it for days to come. 
I mean, we have 500,000 people here. Uh, we have 130,000, so I'm one of them. Uh, doesn't have a doctor, and I'm shopping around, put my name and listen to someone. I have a relative from Bjorn Peninsula, 80 years old, built his problems, can't get in to see, um, get his eyes checked. Now he has to pay out of his own pocket. You can imagine, Linda. I don't know if your mom and dad are alive, but 80 years old, he has to pay $6,200 out of his pocket for cataracts uh, for his eyes. I mean, the list goes on. Meanwhile, we're giving out chocolates and, uh, you know, oil changes and the list goes chairs. Uh, I believe I read on your your station this morning, she never brought back the the chair. So the table come back, but when she left, um, I can't even say her name because it's disrespectful to Memorial and the institution that it is, but the chair chair never come back. So... uh, but this will uh, go 15 minutes, and then it'll, there'll be something else. And it, there's no uh, systemic checks and balances whatsoever to stop this. It's going to happen again. It's happened before. And unfortunately, uh, for you and I, i.e. taxpayers, we're continually on the hook. And and uh, in my pre- one of my previous careers, law enforcement officer, I remember many years ago, 20 years ago, there was an individual up Southern Shore. You know, there was a big investigation, and he had moose meat in his freezer. And he got charged for it and got sentenced to the HMP for 14 days because he never had a tag and stuff. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and that's honest to goodness true. That's about 20, 22, 23 years ago. Yet, we have this going on, and it's all re- released by the other general, and there's nothing going to happen. Yeah. Nothing. And and when, we have people camping out uh, across from Confederation uh, I, Building because they I, don't have a safe place to live. I, I drove by there yesterday and uh, my heart goes out. I mean, nobody, I don't care who you are, people have their own opinion. Nobody wants to do that. I don't care who you are. Nobody says, let's say it's a July 31 degree day. Gee, I think I'll, uh, I'll go uh, camp, take the kids camping that, tonight. That, nobody wants to do that. I don't care. You can. And people say, you know, they have these issues, and they and they probably do, but nobody wants to do that. Yeah, this will have its uh, cycle, and the OCM and CBC and the rest of it, and and you know, a month it'll be forgotten, and we still haven't got our chair back. Miss <laughs> Swain, uh, I thank you for your time, and uh, I enjoy your show. You and Patty, uh, I get to use uh, uh, listen to it now. I'm retired a bit, and when I'm drawn. Thank you very much. All right, John. Thank you. Take care. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. We are going to go now to Paula. You're on the air. Hi, Paula. Oh, hi. Um, I just wanted to call in and speak quickly about the petition before the courts to change the limitation, the statute of limitations for childhood physical uh, abuse. My brother-in-law, Jack, is the one who started this petition because he was in Whitburn at the age of 13 to 17, all over a little petty fight or disagreement, what have you. And while he was in there, he spent a little over two years in isolation, and he never got out until he was 17. So he went in with grade 6, came out with grade 6. He wasn't socialized with the other people or anything like that. And um, I just think it's a shame that now that the both parties are getting on board with agreeing to change the charter, 
the Liberals are saying that they are going to fight it with everything they got, and if they win, they'll appeal it. How is that justice? I'm, you're, uh, sorry, I have to play a little catch-up uh, with you here now, Paula. I'm, uh, what, what's the petition about? What are you talking about? A statute of limitations on what? Childhood, physical, and mental abuse. Uh, there are no statutes of limitations for that in Canada, are there? Or what am I missing? In Newfoundland and New Brunswick, they're the only two provinces that have a statute for claimants to come forward. Oh, okay. Related to the, the Whitburn Boys Home in specifically? Yes. Okay, I got gotcha. Okay, so my brother-in-law was recently diagnosed with cancer. However, he chose to take it about himself to delay his treatment so he can come down and fight not only for justice for himself, but for all... Oh, you're talking about Jack. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry, I, I'm playing uh, catch-up on you here now, Paula. Okay, I got gotcha. you. So any any progress there whatsoever in his fight? Well, right now, uh, both pe- both the oppositions are in favor of having the charter reviewed and amended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the Liberals are saying that they will delay and fight as long as they can. And if they happen to win, if they have the charter changed, they're going to um, appeal it. Yeah. So is he so, represented currently? Like, is he part of that um, legal process involving uh, Lynn Moores and, and them? Yes. Okay. His, All right. His daughter, Brittany Whalen, is his lawyer. Right. And uh, she's been, she was just down recently, too. We, we all went into the Confederation Building last week, and he's been in there every day since. Um, I just don't understand why there's no accountability and why would the Liberals, or I guess it's the Liberals, saying that they're going to fight it or delay it when both of the other parties are in favour? Right. Well, it's, it, yeah, for sure, it's it's still playing out. I, um, uh, I'm glad you raised it again because it's an important issue, and I know your brother Jack has been trying to bring this to to the attention of the, uh, of the public and to government officials for some time now. Um, mm-hmm. Where is the, the court case as it stands or, or that legal process? Um, I can't speak on the legal process. I do know that they still have the petition uh, with the House of Assembly trying to get that motion passed so that you can look at the legislation and have it uh, amended. Okay. All right. Well, Paula, I'm glad you you called us to keep that uh, in the forefront. I really appreciate your time this morning. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And we are going to take a very short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. And we are back. We're going to go now to Alistair. You're on the air. Hi, Alistair. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Oh, I'm pretty good. (laughs) And and the weather is perfect. What I'm calling about this morning, Linda, is the closure of the banks. And, Linda, I call it just absolute uh, rape of rural Newfoundland. I mean, I've often heard the saying, what comes around goes around, and and when I was a boy growing up here, there was no bank in Virgil. Then the bank opened, and now it's closing. And Linda, I I just don't think uh, that uh, there's any need of this. I dare say the bank of, of uh, Nova Scotia's profits might be dropping a bit. 
But uh, do they ever look at any other way of of uh, recouping that without just bang closing some little town like Burjo down? Uh, yeah, it's going to have a devastating impact. But of course, uh, you know, what uh, many of the big uh, corporations will argue is that, you know, this is reality. Now, this is how these services are moving. I noticed myself uh, in dealing with a number of companies that I deal with, uh, you don't even get a human anymore. You're just uh, either, uh, you know, message- messaging back and forth or um, somebody who's working in their basement will give you a call, if you know what I mean. I know what you mean, but... but you can't get in. Yes, but is that right? I'm not saying whether it's right or not. I'm saying that that's the way things are going. Well, I think it's about time that somebody, either the young people or the universities, or we have governments that uh, that that start uh, trying to pre prevent those 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 things. I'm, I, I'm, I must say, I prefer face-to-face. It, it helps to fill in a lot of those blanks. You have opportunities to ask the appropriate questions. You, uh, you uh, develop a sense of trust. Um, and uh, you feel more, uh, I feel a little more secure in, uh, you know, my privacy, those kinds of things. Oh, yes, I, I, I definitely agree with you. But what I'm looking at in this case is there's no warning, there's no nothing, just shut her down completely, boys, shut her down completely. Now, I mean, can you tell me that they couldn't go, to say, to a couple days a week? Couldn't they just close down one of their banks of the mini in Montreal, Toronto, Ed, Ed, Edmonton, Cal, Cal, Calgary. Why do they have to pick on just a little town? Now I know I'm I'm on there this morning wasting time because there's nobody in in Toronto cares a, a hoot what's happen what's hap- happening in Virgil. But if they knew how much this is hurting a little uh, rural town. My Christ, they 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 can't have a, a bit of decency in uh, their uh, body. It's just uh, numbers, numbers on a spreadsheet. That's all it is. I fully understand. Well, I, in that case, I guess it's just uh, uh, it's a case of I think personally, I th- I think I don't know what the feds can do or not, but that the banks should be charged so many billion for rece- for uh, for take taking back the service ser- services from people it can't be just all money 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 there's also the service yeah, and customer service is a, is a, a thing of the past, it, it, it appears as, as well. Um, that's why I always uh, give my repeat business to anybody who has uh, excellent customer service. Yes, well, anyway, I guess that's the way it is, Linda, but I still think that uh, somebody somewhere can uh, start to put controls. And, uh, and uh, to be closing those banks... I mean, do they realize how much they're changing the lives of of uh, people? I'm, I mean, if you close one bank in Montreal, it won't be took notice of only by the person who's using it, and that person just moves to the bank next and next door. But I mean, when you take the bank out of a place like uh, like Virgil, I mean, you've cut off everything Virgil to Arbor Breton. 
Yeah. And and it's just not. It's it shouldn't shouldn't be allowed, uh, Linda. That's all uh, all I, I I can say. Alistair, I really appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. Well, like I say, you know, Linda, I I guess uh, I don't I don't know. Maybe maybe it's time for us to have a, a few dictators around. Oh no! Don't say that. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> don't say that, Alistair. I appreciate your call. Thank you. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Uh, we're going to go now to John Harris, uh, Director of External Affairs with Memorial University Student Union. Hello. Hey, how's it going, Linda? Good. So, the AG report is yeah, down. Yeah. <laughs> this uh, this report confirms what students have been saying for years. Uh, there is a, a serious administrative bloat, uh, lack of transparency, uh, lack of democracy, and uh, you know we need some some serious change at this university. So uh, the university says it uh, accepts the recommendations and it will be implementing them. Do you think that's enough? I I, I think uh, you know I, I heard what uh, uh, Dr. Bose has had to say, and you know the 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 one thing I'd like to to mention is the you know we used uh, memorial we used corporate headhunters at a cost of 1.1 million dollars uh, for 15 uh, management and exec positions and uh, 33% are no longer employed by the university uh, so uh, what we see with these corporate headhunter firms is that they uh, you know hire these uh, type of positions like the former president which was hired from uh one of these firms and they don't then those same firms can poach uh members of the executive and management and they don't stay around for long and they're not committed to the university i think that uh, what we need confirmation from i know the internal search is led by bose right now uh for new positions are going well we haven't had a commitment for a presidential search that is open and uh not from the uh corporate headhunting uh contracts that are left over so that, that's one thing i want to uh, point out and the other thing I want to point out is that I, I think that this this report will be used by this government to justify the privatization of this university, which they uh, are doing now with the $68.4 million cut from, for the next five years. Uh, and I, I, I really want to stress that this is not a debt and a fault that students should have to pay for in the form of the doubling of tuition. Uh, the you know, we need better management of this university. We need more transparency, more democracy, more oversight, and that is clear. But what we don't need is for this government to completely pull the rug underneath this university by cutting $68.4 million. So is, uh, is that your fear, that ultimately this uh, AG report um, that, you know, shows there was a definite lack of oversight uh, allowing some of these uh, ridiculous expenses uh, and overpayments, um, you and doubling of payments in some cases, uh, so you're fearful that this is just going to be an excuse by government to say, you know what, we're not going to be funding this anymore. Absolutely. I, I think I think it's in the playbook of, uh, of many you know, governments uh, of our time is that they run uh, ineffectual uh, corporate entities 
pseudo corporate entities that are you know should be public publicly owned public institutions like memorial is a public institution and when you introduce the corporate model of having you know four hundred thousand dollars salary for a ceo like president you have these high powered you know administrative executives that are given a lot of power like you know, 33 percent of the budget w- hadn't even gone through the board of regents for approval so and then we use that as an excuse to privatize what should be a public good uh when really what we need is you know a a more transparent system more democratic system and uh, a public university that is uh you know funded and not put on the backs of students to receive an education i think But isn't that part of the problem, though, that, uh, you know, we've seen uh, the mismanagement that takes place when you have, uh, you know, a a government entity that's supposed to be run like a corporation, if you know what I mean? There's a dichotomy there. It doesn't quite uh, uh, fit. So either should it be one thing or another? No, exactly. I, I think it should be a, a public institution with democratic values and, uh, you know, a, uh, a transparent and open processes with open books. I, I don't I, I think that, you know, you can have uh, the independence of a university while being transparent and having oversight uh, in a you know democratic uh, you know, board. I, I, I think that, you know, the, the government can't. Uh, be absolved from this conversation because, you know, they've created this system of they're the ones appointing the the the, the majority of the board of regents. They're they're you know uh, the ones that are uh, completely pulling the rug underneath this university and, and wanting nothing to do with it by by saying you know we're cutting you off. I think we need a a, a government that's going to show leadership that's going to uh, you know change the way that this university is run with more uh, collegial governance, with more input from students, faculty, and workers of the university, and more from the public, and have those systems at the top uh, that fall in line with what public work, uh, you know, management should be paid. I think we, you know, there's, we're seeing a caller earlier, uh, Jim Bennett, you know, he mentioned that the the salaries of the uh, upper administration are, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars more than uh, than the average in Canada. So let, let's, you know, it doesn't. It really doesn't take, uh, uh, you know, absolutely cutting this university down to its knees uh, and 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 washing our hands of it by by what this government is doing, which is taking sixty eight point four million dollars. It takes leadership to. Uh, uh, bring this university where it needs to be uh, by being transparent, by being open, uh, by having you know an open search for the president, by changing uh, the board of regents, and uh, by changing the memorial act to make that a democratic and, and uh, transparent process. Uh, so I, I think that the, the the biggest takeaway I think is that you know, students have been saying this for years. We've had a you know, a, a year after year, uh, we've been talking about how there's been administrative bloat, how there's been misspending, and now students are paying the ultimate cost of of the doubling of tuition, and we should not be uh, blamed and asked to carry this debt. I, I think that the 
the right thing to do is to bring, put the money back into the tuition offset grant and mandate that it goes toward offsetting tuition for students. Okay. John, we're overdue for the news. I'm getting uh, the finger wagged at me now. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Linda. Take care. Alrighty, Bye-bye. And uh, John Harris is the Director of External Affairs with Munsu. We're up to news now. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And we're back. Uh, We are going to go now to uh, Jay Goldberg. He's the Interim Atlantic Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hello, Jay Goldberg. Hello, good morning. So um, I know there's been a lot of conversation in this province in particular, but right across the country, about the carbon tax. What's the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation's uh, view on it? Well, we're, of course, against the carbon tax. We've certainly called for it to be repealed entirely. Um, and uh, certainly, I think it's it's a really good time to talk about it, first of all, because we're heading into winter. And second of all, because Premier Fury and a uh, member of Parliament from Avalon, uh, Ken McDonald, have stood up really strongly against this carbon tax. And as we head into the winter, uh, you know, just a flag for households, this carbon tax is not just going to hit us at the, uh, the, the gas pump. It's really going to hit on home heating. And so, you know, the average household in Atlantic Canada, uh, if, you, if, if you're heating your home with furnace oil, uh, which is about 1,600 litres for the winter, you're looking at an extra carbon tax cost alone of $272 this year. And, you know, if you're heating by uh, furnace oil, you're looking at about $250 added to your home heating bill. So, uh, you know, we're calling for it to be scrapped. And I think one of the important things is, you know, home heating is not optional. Uh, driving your kids to work and getting this, driving your kids to school and getting to work—that's not optional. Uh, and so, you know, we're really uh, highlighting what Premier Fury has said, which is that the carbon tax, in particular, is really targeting families that live in rural areas. Uh, it's unfair to them. Uh, the carbon tax hasn't been proven to help the environment, and so we're calling for the repeal. And it appears to be especially punishing to those who simply don't have any options. Uh, Seniors, for instance, on fixed incomes, you're not going to change out your oil tank for another heating source. If you happen to be in your 70s or 80s on a fixed income, you won't have the money up front to do that, regardless of what uh, um, programs are out there for you to do it. Well, that's exactly right. You know, the government doesn't offer, of course, a 100% rebate for, for changing home heating. And in some areas, it just doesn't make sense to make the switch to, for example, we hear governments talk a lot about heat pumps. Uh, you know, that's not really effective for an entire house uh, when you're talking about Atlantic Canadian winter. And so I think you're absolutely right. I think that uh, a lot of the policymakers who are pushing this carbon tax, are they're out of touch with the, what's going on in rural Canada. Uh, we see, for example, uh, Finance Minister Christian Freeland a couple of months ago when she was asked about, for example, having to pay carbon tax when you're filling up your uh, tank to, to drive around uh, to do your chores, to get to school, to go to work. And she said, well, look, I take the subway and I, and I ride my bike. So, you know, here, those are some solutions. And I think it really just shows how out of touch, particularly the federal government is with the lives of so many millions of Canadians that don't just live in downtown Toronto or downtown Montreal. 
And we're seeing more and more of these types of policies, not just uh, in, in government, but we're seeing it now with, with big corporations uh, who are uh, cutting costs at the expense of rural um, Newfoundland and Labrador in our particular case. So um, do you think there's any realistic um, uh, possibility that the federal government might say, you know what, maybe this was a mistake? Well, I do think there's a chance for a pause. The federal uh, carbon tax is supposed to go up every year between now and 2030. So the carbon tax is actually going to triple. So if you're paying $250 carbon tax bill on home heating this year, that's going to get to $750 a year by 2030. And so I think there's a realization across the country that this is not affordable. Uh, the federal government may be the last ones to realize this, but we saw Ken McDonald, the MP for Avalon, vote with the Conservatives to entirely repeal the carbon tax just a couple weeks ago. And that was really unprecedented to break with your party. And, and he said people can't afford to heat their homes. They can't afford groceries. You know, he had to stand up for his constituents. And of course, you know, Premier Fury, who's the only liberal premier in Canada right now, has been adamant for years that the carbon tax shouldn't be going up, that there needs to be a federal pause, that they need to look at the realities faced by people in rural Canada. And so, you know, I do think there's some momentum here. And so I do think it's possible that if, you know, we keep pushing, if the Premier keeps pushing, and, and if other MPs, particularly in Newfoundland and Labrador and in Atlantic Canada, start to stand up, that perhaps we can get a pause at the very least uh, if we get to April and they're looking for a hike. So I think a pause is an option. And certainly a couple of years from now, we do know if the Conservatives were to win the election, they promised to scrap the carbon tax entirely. And of course, uh, the carbon tax doesn't just have an impact, as you already indicated, on uh, home heating fuel or, or gasoline. It has an impact on uh, groceries and all of the goods that we receive because it's coming in to this province one of two ways and there are no alternatives uh, to get those things in here. Well, that's exactly right. You know, it's so often that people who talk about the carbon tax, you like to pretend, well, it's just at the gas pumps. And then you remind them about home heating and they'll say, OK, it's just those two things. But, you know, you, you have to get whether it's food or clothing from the point of production to the point of sale. Right. And so the truckers who are driving that. Uh, the the boats that are taking that, that's all using fuel that, that the carbon tax applies to. And so it's fueling inflation. We're seeing inflation over the past two, three years has been worse than it's been in 30 or 40 years. The carbon tax is playing a role in that because it's hiking the price of everything. When you make it more expensive to again, bring goods from the point of production to the point of sale, you are making those goods more expensive. And yes, that absolutely includes food. So, you know, as you mentioned early on uh, when we were chatting, you've got seniors on fixed income who are now seeing a $250 addition to their home heating bill in the winter, uh, who are now paying uh, $0.14 cents extra at the gas pump for the carbon tax, and who are also paying now higher costs for clothing, for uh, groceries, for other essentials. And it's really just taking people to the cleaners. Uh, it's not affordable. Uh, and actually, if you look at the environmental statistics, look, BC has had the highest carbon tax in Canada for 
15 years. And, and for the most part, their emissions have gone up. Nova Scotia, until the federal carbon tax was imposed in July, had the, was, was a, a national leader in reducing emissions. They had the lowest carbon tax in Canada. So not only is it a, a harmful policy for families, a harmful policy uh, for those just trying to make ends meet, but it also hasn't been proven to help the environment. And, you know, that's why we've called on it to be scrapped. And that's why I think other members of Parliament, along with Ken McDonald, need to stand up to Justin Trudeau and say enough is enough. Jay Goldberg is the Interim Atlantic Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. What do you think about what he's had to say? Give us a call. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, a sledge showcase and Atlantic Lotto coming up right after this. And we're back on uh, VOCM Open Line. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. We're going to go now to Tom. You're on the air. Hi, Tom Davis. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Oh, man, I want to pile on to the uh, MUN stuff, but uh, I think Mr. Bennett and Pauline and John have all done a good job on it. Um, I, just, I do want to add that Mr. Bennett did en- mention the uh, unfunded pension liabilities and post-employment benefits, and they, they went, they've, they're going up, so they're, they're actually not dealing with them year to year. They're, they're accumulating them with raises. It gets worse, so just to throw that on there. But that's not the reason I called. I... Um, <clears throat> Just want to. I want to put something out there that the Canadian Medical Association Journal put out last, uh, uh, almost two weeks ago now, and um, it didn't seem to to make the news, although it was on CBC. Um, it basically was the fact that certain antidepressants can drive some alcohol users to drink significantly more, and um, and a, a, someone close to me is actually in the mental health, and she she knew nothing about it, and upon looking at it. It was really alarming, and she was very surprised that she hadn't heard about it. So, so basically, the um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, which is a common antidepressant, and 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 they're given under the names that a lot of people will recognize: Selexa, Sexapro, Prozac, Paxil, Paxiva, Zoloft, have been shown to significantly increase people's drive or desire to drink. Uh, moving people, especially if they have um, alcohol use disorder, to go very, very severe. So the message here, please don't stop your antidepressants, but please do reach out to your uh, your healthcare provider and, uh, A, make sure they're aware of this, and, and, and B, um, reflect and uh, consult with them. That is extraordinary. That one's uh, passed me by, I must say. Yeah, one one case study there. There was a lady who used to have a couple of glasses of wine. Uh, it was part of her work and whatever else. And uh, she was put on this uh, on an antidepressant and got up to 18 drinks per day. And then, when taken off it, her desire to drink dropped way back down again. So, something to look at for people because a lot of times those challenges go hand in hand. Indeed, and I mean, there are many people who have been on these uh, medications for good reason uh, for a long, long time. How come we're only hearing about this now? Well, it was a study that just got published, so you know, a lot of times we assume that that everything that we're being prescribed has, you know, is what's in our best interest. But as we as we know many times over and over again. Uh, opioids would be a really good example, but you know many many examples of unintended consequences 
from pharmaceuticals. Another good example is uh, uh, Ozempic. What's it called? Zemp? I, I don't have it in front of me now, but you know the weight loss. Well, it's a di- diabetes yes, juice yeah. drug. They've mm-hmm. they've now determined that that you'll lose a certain amount of weight, but then you have to stay on it your whole life, or else it'll immediately come back. And and there's a threshold to what percentage you could possibly lose. Like it's not like con- consistently, but as soon as you go back off it, then the weight just immediately comes back on. So you know, again, when we get on uh, long-term medication, without trying to deal with the underlying challenges. Uh, a lot of times we're just a making the pharmaceuticals rich, and ha- and again unintended consequences to our body. And anyway, well, the benefit there is for uh, people who um, are living with diabetes, of course. Uh, but if you're taking it for other reasons, and some people are being prescribed it for other reasons like weight loss, then I guess it becomes a little more um, perhaps problematic. Okay, so my main main reason for calling, um, yeah, and, and just to tack a little thing onto that, is it, it always amazes me that we allow the NLC to advertise alcohol, period. We don't allow it for cigarettes. Uh, I, I don't understand how come it's okay to, to, you know, when we know so many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are challenged by alcohol, uh, I really think that's morally and ethically wrong, and uh, I, I think that our leaders need to have a hard look at that. Um, so moving over to to the twin of alcohol challenges, which would be uh, gambling and specifically the Atlantic Lottery. Um, they just had their their annual report just came out, and I dove into it a little bit. And and Newfoundlander and Labrador, uh, on average, Labradorians on average spend seven hundred and twenty five dollars per person on uh, gambling, which is four four times as much as the average. Quebecer spends, which which and and almost twice as much as a Prince Edward Islander. So it's a, it's a little sobering when we look at it. And Newfoundlanders uh, who only make up twenty, almost twenty one percent of Atlantic Canadian population, sixty percent of the breakover revenue are Newfoundlander Labradorians. VL in yeah. the VLT world, VLT world. It's it, from year to year we've gone up 18%. So, you know, it's it's sobering when we look at how much people are challenged in our province uh, financially, and again how gambling now now they've uh, opened up the uh, they've opened up to online game gaming, um, you know, the different online games. And again, the logic is that well, people can access illegal or non-provincial uh, approved gambling. So it's better to have, to be taking the money as as a, as Atlantic Lotto and then redistributing it back to the provinces. But it's a real, you know, it's a real challenge for all of us to figure out what we do with some of these numbers. You know, and the Atlantic Lottery Corporation president, Patrick Daigle, said that 2022-23 was bright compared to 21-22 because sales increased and specifically the iGaming which is these online gaming went up 30% Lotto Max all time high Proline which is a sports gambling up 16.3% 
That whole sports gambling thing has really taken off. My goodness gracious, you can't watch a game without being bombarded with these ads uh, in Ontario um, for online uh, gambling. They now even have segments in, in sports programming specifically for that, you know, talking about the odds and all of that stuff. It's it's overwhelming. And, uh, you know, I have no compulsion towards that, thankfully. Uh, I'd find it an annoyance. It's, you know, I just want to watch the game. Uh, but, uh, you know, the push is there. It's, uh, sorry, it's obviously big, big money. Well, apparently 34% of Canadians, uh, according to a BMO study, plan to pay for their retirement with a lottery win. You know, a little yeah. over one third. That's shocking, isn't and it? So I mean, I, I've often picked up a scratch ticket and and joked, you know, here's my here's my retirement plan, right? Um, so I mean, it's always in somebody's mind. Um, wow, it, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's, so, I mean, I, it's I mean, another tax I, again. It, well, it's right, it is, but unfortunately, it oftentimes taxes people who maybe can afford it the least, and it, you know, it's it's challenging. It's it's something for all of us to just sit with and and try and you know it's all these social challenges are you know are really big but for me when i listen to advertisements of you know take your helicopter to your cliffside mansion or have a submarine uh you know i i just feel like you know if we're gonna do advertising for gambling um perhaps it should be more somehow coached and that it's not trying to sell a, a very wasteful lifestyle, obviously, not in alignment with trying to have reduced greenhouse gases or to people's footprint, but but more importantly, to try and sell it as maybe something that is just like a entertainment thing, as opposed to trying to sell people on the concept of ending, you know, Dreaming solving, big. solving our trial, our challenges. So, you know, again, same thing with Atlantic Lottery, you know, and and. You know, we obviously, the government has some sway with that. Uh, Minister Cody actually is, I think she's the one uh, responsible for Atlantic Lottery. And, you know, I don't think we should be advertising these harmful things unless somehow we can use it as a positive force within our province. You know, that, that would be my strong position. I don't think it's ethical or moral to... You know, and children hear it. I mean, it's you know, you can't control the radio airwaves or or what happens on the different media. So you know, I just call on the people who have any power to to really think about. You know, it's not about how much money we get into our treasury, because the long-term costs to the devastation that these really destructive forces do to our to the people of our province far outweighs. The bit of money that, you know, as we alluded to earlier, just ends up, unfortunately, many of it get much of it getting not definitely used to for the best long term interests of and perhaps being used to address the problems it creates. I'm just putting it out there as a a generic kind of question. But, uh, Tom, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Take care, everyone. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, Tom Davis there. We're up to a uh, break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a uh, hockey sledge showcase. That's going to be interesting. Coming up right after this. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. 
And we are back on VOCM Open Line. We're going out to Clarenville now to talk about a sledge hockey showcase that's coming up. Hello, Heather Paul. Hi, how are you? Good. So tell us a little bit about this event. Uh, we have Paralympian Liam Hickey coming out with his team, the Avalon Sled Dogs. And on September, tw- or sorry, October 29th, from 10.30 to 1.30 at the East Lake Event Center, we're going to uh, let people come out and see sledge hockey and then get to try it themselves. Um, it's great fun. I know people here who have tried it, uh, Ben Murphy for one, and, uh, you know, he's a pretty good hockey player, but he said it challenged him. <laughs> yes, for sure. Have you uh, ever played? I've never played, no. Uh, my son, who is 13 now, he has cerebral palsy and loves hockey. Um, and we, a couple of years ago, went to Harbor Grace. They had a similar showcase there where we met Liam Hickey and his team. And he loved it. So we would really like to get that going here in Clarenville, which is why we decided to do this showcase, because sledge hockey is for everybody. It doesn't matter your ability. It's inclusive to everyone. Right. You don't have to have uh, issues standing or skating. Uh, You can be... Anyone can do it. Yeah. um, Provided you have the upper body strength. (laughs) (laughs) My other son uh, tried it that time with us as well, and he is a stand-up hockey player, and he absolutely loves sledge. Wow, yeah. it's uh, It takes a little adjustment, though, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'd be able to... <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, and just to be able to... Uh... The, the, I don't know. Uh, I've watched sledge, sledge hockey many times, and I'm always fascinated by it. The the skill level that's required, The but it looks like great fun just the same. Oh, it really is. And in our small but growing town, I think we could really use another inclusive sport here. So your, your sons that are playing uh, sledge hockey, do they have an opportunity to play with other players right now? Not here in Clarenville. Um, the Avalon Sledge Dogs were amazing and told us if we're ever in town when they have practice that we can, we can drop by. But, I mean, it's about a two-hour drive, so <laughs> it would be better if we could get it here. Yeah, for sure. Not exactly convenient for you, but fun nonetheless. Um, no. uh, so you want to try and establish a team in the Clarenville area? Oh, that would be our dream. Wow. So what um, what kind of catchment area are you looking at? Um, anyone who wants to drive here. <laughs> we are kind of... Taking uh, all comers. Yeah, we're kind of um, like a hub. <laughs> so we have a lot of areas that do come to Clarenville quite often. And I know there's lots of kids and adults out there who would love to have something inclusive like sledge hockey. Right. So that's this uh, Sunday, October 29th? Yes, from 10.30 to 1.30 at the East Lake Event Center. Um, the event was sponsored by the Clarenville Lions Club. Thankfully to them, they uh, covered our ice time. <laughs> right. And all you need is a helmet and gloves. And that's it. And <laughs> and the sledges will be provided? The sledges will be there. The Avalon Sled Dogs are bringing out their sledges. And uh, we're really hoping for a good turnout. Anyone who wants to come is more than welcome. So what will that mean now? If, if you get a good turnout, you have people saying, yeah, yeah, I'm on board. Let's do this thing. Um, then how do you, you know, go about acquiring the sledges, for instance? Uh, well, that's going to take a bit of legwork. Um, there's lots of funding out there for parasports. So uh, that would be our first step. And just going to local businesses and organizations looking for funding. And hopefully it will just grow from there.
Well, that's fabulous, Heather. All the best with that. Um, uh, anybody involved, do they have to sign up or anything or just show? Just show up. <laughs> just show up, helmet and gloves. Yes. <laughs> well, that's fabulous. Uh, all ages, all abilities. Yes. Excellent. Heather Paul, uh, all the best with that. Let us know. Get us, uh, Keep us up to date on how it goes. I will. You should come out and try it. Oh, my goodness. I'd love to do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I, it would be, you know... I'd lose all dignity doing it, but, you know, I've been known to lose my dignity from time to time. Um, Heather, thanks. Thank you so much. Alrighty. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So that's a sledge hockey showcase at the East Link Event Center in Clarenville. Come one, come all. Sunday, October 29th, 10.30 to 1.30 p.m. They want to try to establish a team in the area. We're going to go now to the uh, MHA for Burgio LaPoyle. You know him as Minister Andrew Parsons. Hello. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's uh, busy times whenever the house is in session. But, it is uh, for sure. But overall, there's a lot of exciting things happening. But uh, yeah, just happy to be on and chat with you. Yeah, and I was a little surprised. I mean, I know how these timelines work, but um, I was a little surprised that the bank closures didn't come up for debate in the House yesterday. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where, look, it's... Uh, it's an extremely difficult topic, but it's not one where usually we're questioning government decisions, government policy, public taxpayer dollars. But, I mean, a bank closure uh, doesn't fit either one of those. I mean, now, does that mean it's not a concern to the people that affects? Absolutely not. Um, but I, I guess people don't look. Generally, we're, you know, <laughs> and I've been on both sides of this. When you're in the House, you're getting blamed for something or you're blaming somebody for something. And in this one, it's hard to blame. But, uh that doesn't mean that I'm not aware of it and working on it and been in touch with Scotiabank. Uh, and it's pretty upsetting uh, when you have one financial institution in your community, and Burgio's not the only area affected. There's multiple. Um, when you have one financial institution and all of a sudden they give you notice that they're pulling up and leaving and uh, leaves a lot of questions. Now, you know, some would argue this is the way of the world. Uh, banks are not in it to uh, to to provide a public service per se. They're in it for uh, you know the viability of the business. And if the the viability is not there, they're going to uh, cut those losses. So, um, you know, how do you move forward? How do you how does a a community like Burgio move forward? Well, this is the thing that we're trying to figure, and there's you know there's a multiple different angles of this. I mean, the first thing is yes. I mean, look, they're corporate citizens. Um, I'm sure they do a lot of good for the community, but right now in the areas that are affected, it's hard to see that. There's a lot of anger, uh, and again, they they have a, a financial bottom line, which is their driving factor. You know what their shareholders are going to get, what their pr- profit for each quarter is. The other side is that, look, I don't think it's a secret that uh, the actual physical use of banks has gone down. Uh, that's you know the world's worst-kept secret. People aren't going into banks or credit unions as much anymore, uh, a lot more online. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a constituency of people that use it, whether it's business owners, uh, seniors, other people that like to have that interaction if you're going in for loans and things like that. Some of these things are a little more difficult to do online. Uh, I guess where I am is just trying to figure out, you know, what what are the different impacts that we can mitigate here in terms of will there be some automated banking that remains? Uh, what do business owners do in the area? Like, how do they figure that out? So, you know, I had a, a good conversation with Scotiabank yesterday. 
Uh, I think they're still working on that. Uh, and that's where we need to work with them to figure out something that fits. I mean, at the end of the day, I'd, I'd like to think that there's a group in Toronto that couldn't care less. Uh, so we have to find solutions that work for us and work for them. Uh, I, I, sometimes I, I, I don't think there's much hope in thinking they're going to do the, the right thing by the community. Maybe that's a little cynical, but I also think it is. Look, this, we had three closures last year. I think Fogo was affected. There was other communities affected last year. And this is something that's part of a, a Canadian thing. I mean, we're talking about thousands of individuals losing their jobs, hundreds of bank closures. So it's, it's widespread and it's national. Indeed. And in smaller communities, uh, you know, if you're losing two, three, four good paying jobs, uh, uh, that is a, a, an impact on its own. But uh, you mentioned business owners. And of course, uh, we talked to M&L yesterday and there are some concerns about the um, economic development aspect uh, of this. Uh, John Norman also touched on it as well. You know, if you have a community that has a number of businesses or is trying to grow its business base uh, to keep the community viable this becomes a terrible inconvenience for them in doing their business absolutely it's a pain in the behind it's totally but for me this is where we have the fine okay when a gap opens we need to find a way to to figure out what will come out of that to service people whether that's other financial institutions uh, whether it's different programs I mean we do have as government responsibility for economic development something we take very seriously I will toss out one angle and um, I, I'm a big proponent of cooperatives, and I'm a big proponent of credit unions, and that's a conversation that is being had uh, to maybe fill the gap that is existing elsewhere. Uh, we've seen them in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. They work extremely well. They're owned by the community, and so maybe it's time for a bigger conversation on the cooperative movement and what we can do so that there's a community ownership of this rather than relying on others let's find a way to fill that so i i mean i could get on all day and sort of be t- uh, ticked off with the bank but i'm more about okay what do we do how do we figure this out so that people can still run their businesses that people still have services that's my prime totally moved into solution mode here although i will say friday i was pretty ticked off with scotia bank and if i ran into one of their executives i probably would have had something different to say uh, so um, finding solutions, and you mentioned that this is you know where where we should be going now is one thing. But is there enough time? I know there's a little time. Um, some of these uh, bank closures aren't happening until August, so that's a, a little window there. But is it enough of a window to establish a, an alternative or or some of these solutions? As you um, I will say that the turnaround to bring in a new credit institution. Uh, I, I I think we got a fair amount of runway here. Is that enough? I don't know. But again, this is where we work with the bank. I mean, in some cases, they can work with us on the, the properties that they leave behind. Are there options that we can put in place if more time is needed? That's where we need conversations. We need to talk uh, to these people. We need to talk to the people that are also bringing solutions. And the community needs to be involved in this as well. Uh, so, look, I, as much as it's, August seems like it's a long time away, it's not a long period of time for this, which is why the conversations need to happen now. Uh, but I do appreciate, look, I've had a bunch of people from, and again, I'm coming at this primarily from, you know, a constituency point of view. Bergio uh, is in my district, so I've been talking to individuals and, you know, putting it out there. We've had these talks. Uh, but again, some of the solutions that work 
elsewhere can work you know in we we don't need a one is maybe not a one size fits all but we don't also need a unique solution in each one maybe something that works in one place can also be reconstituted or tried somewhere else andrew parsons i appreciate your time thank you very much thanks so much for the opportunity okay Bye-bye. Uh, your thoughts on what he's had to say? Uh, he's uh, in a solution mode now. Um, what do you think? Can it work in your community? Give us a call. Uh, the numbers are here. And we are back on VLCM Open Line. We're going to go now to Lewisport, and we're going to speak with the Reverend Art Elliott. Hello. Uh, good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Oh, I'm doing fine, thank you. That's good. What's on your mind? Well, obviously, uh, from Lewisport, I want to talk about the um, uh, the banking situation, and uh, the um, uh, obviously the, the um, Bank of Nova Scotia has been here in Lewisport for 90 years, and they have provided a remarkable service over the years, and uh, they have been consistently. Uh, great in terms of uh, public service. But uh, this uh, particular news, of course, is uh, devastating to, to the town. Um, I uh, wrote um, Minister um, Goody Hutchings, Minister of uh, Rural Economic Development, uh, yesterday in an email. Would you mind if I, it's very brief, would you mind if I shared it? Sure. Dear Minister, I am a resident of Lewisport, a former president of the Lewisport and Area Chamber of Commerce, and disturbed greatly this a.m. with the news of the pending closure of seven banks in rural Newfoundland, and especially, of course, Scotia Bank in Lewisport. I know you are aware of the detrimental implications to this area, so I won't elaborate on that. However, the economic impact on private citizens and the economy in general is my immediate concern. It will help stifle the growth in our town when people realize that they have to travel for simple banking services. Remember, Lewisport is surrounded by 15 other communities who get bank services here, so there is a multiplication factor here. And a major concern for this area is that with our port development strategy and the real possibility of Lewisport becoming the port of choice for the oil industry as it moves north and the wind energy development botwood requiring so many employment opportunities, the immediacy of banking facilities is of utmost importance. I hope that you can use your office influence to convince the bank to reverse this detrimental decision, etc. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, I suggest in that letter is the um, sort of the misconception right now uh, that uh, the banking services are being closed in seven communities. That's not exactly right. They are being closed not only to Lewisport, for example but for the 15 other communities in, uh, in this area. Right, Campbellton and, and, and Embry. The and the same for Bonavista, mm -hmm. uh, Whitburn, and any of the other communities uh, mentioned in that list, you know. So it's not just seven communities. I would say it's a multiple, um, well, a multiple factor of five anyway, you know. 
uh, with 15 in Lewisport and uh, and multiple uh, communities in all of the other areas. So you're a former uh, president of the uh, local chamber of commerce. Uh, do you see um, alternatives or solutions as um, uh, the um MHA uh, Andrew Parsons just mentioned for his region? Um, obviously, um, uh, there has to be a solution. I mean, and uh, the cooperatives uh, serve this province well, and that may be a possibility. Uh, but it still isn't the, uh, 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 the bank, and it, it, it's uh, uh, the immediacy of bank services available uh, that that is so so important. Um, with respect to what uh, Minister Parsons had to say, and um, and I agree with much what he did say. But the point I want uh, to make uh, more than any other point this morning is the fact that um, uh, on the one hand, government can step to one side and say, hey, look, this is a matter between bank and communities. But I want to emphasize that in no uncertain terms that this is also a political issue. Uh, and with an impending election coming, uh, this is going to have a tremendous uh, influence uh, on who gets elected because government will be judged at that time uh, as to whether they uh, stood up for rural Newfoundland in this particular situation or whether they uh, simply had a hands-off approach. Uh, when we had the um, fight, basically, uh, a few years ago about retaining lab and x-rays in, uh, in rural Newfoundland, uh, the, uh, we learned, well, it's been a long-standing feature, but we learned in very acute terms uh, that elections are won or lost on the impact that it has on two basic issues. One issue is certainly... Uh, health, and the other is certainly how it impacts your wallet, you know. And uh, the uh, in in the forthcoming election, and government has been very quiet, no public statements except what Andrew Parsons had to say just just now. Uh, they're going to be judged on whether they stood up for the people of uh, rural Newfoundland or whether they washed their hands from this particular issue. That's the point that I want to make more than anything else, because it is a political issue and government uh, should be voicing uh, not only their concern, but their action in this matter. Reverend Art Elliott in Lewisport, I, I appreciate your call this morning. Thank you very much. More than welcome. Alrighty. Bye-bye. We're going to go now to Mike. You're on the air. Hi, Mike. Yes, good morning. How are you? Uh Good. I'd like to thank uh, Triple Bay Eagles Ground and Search and Rescue for uh, helping us out Saturday. We got stuck. We uh, were in the woods on Nargo, and on the way out, we broke down through two or three feet of bog, and knowing after we got the Argo out of it that she went down on top of a rock and bottomed out, and there was no way to get her out. So we let the winch out to hook her onto a tree and that, and anyway, then the winch wouldn't work. So 
there we were, no way to get her out. Well and, and truly stuck. <laughs> we were well and truly stuck. We saw each other in heat and that and stuff, but anyway, uh, in between the jigs and the reels there, we were trying to get her out with all the power and everything, and I shut her off to call search and rescue, and then uh, when I went to start her, we still had lots of power for the wipers and the heater and everything to work, but she wouldn't start so now we lost our heat and we lost everything. And anyway, we had, ordinarily, we had food and shelter and everything else, but then we got wet. The rain came pouring down. We wound up getting wet trying to get rid of it. And then the water came so far that we were up over an easy water in the bag. So anyway, the boys came in and uh, we called two fellows first to come in on Argos and they couldn't get in there anywhere. They were getting stuck, couldn't find the trail. The search and rescue came in, they couldn't find the trail. They got broke down, and then they walked into us through hell. <laughs> Roughest kind of country that you can imagine that when you went off the trail, you're in hell in there. And uh, so anyway, where was this to exactly? Uh, just down from Goobies, between Goobies and North Harbor. Okay, yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, we were there, and uh, we said, well, the only way to get out, we had to get the ergo going. So we tried to get the ergo going with putting rope around the pulleys and everything, nothing would work. And then this fellow there told me, he said, boy, he said, one time, he said, we got a battery pack or something like that. He said, one time, he said, we started an outboard motor, he said, with a battery pack. So he said, you know, like, then I thought about it. I said, I remember seeing something on YouTube about that, and everybody was very skeptical. So anyway, I had a receptacle saw there with the battery into it. We took the battery out, and uh, we wound up with a fork and a spoon and fitted in the contacts of the, of the battery pack. Bennett go across the terminals, Put it on. It didn't know up to 24 volts, and then the battery pack was going to blow the electronics and that or not or what. But anyway, put it on, turned the key, way to go. So then we got out. Wow. Uh, it just go. goes to show how quickly things can go wrong, though. Well, I'm 75 years old. The first time I ever got stuck that I thought I was going to spend the night in the woods. And not a good feeling, I, is it? I wore out uh, half a dozen arrows. And uh, like I said, this country in there, I've been in there a hundred times, but they couldn't follow the trail. The, the, the trail was uh, there. I, the last tracks that were there was, I came out uh, a couple of weeks ago and you could barely see places of where I, where I came out to that day. But like I said, once we got the arrow going, well, I know it was every bit of the country. I know it was every hole, every ditch and everything that's there. And uh, we were out in 10 or 15 minutes. Like, I, all I had to do was walk up on the top of a little hill, and I could see the lights of my house. I could see the lights on Old Mill Road. Uh, but I tell you, when when you tried to go on a straight line in over that country like they had to try to do where they couldn't find the trail and that and stuff, the brush, the, the, it's hell. It, it, it's unbelievable that they uh, even got in there walking it's uh without knowing where you're going to and uh, knowing the trails 
Well, no, the work that the volunteers of the uh, ground search and rescue throughout Newfoundland and Labrador is just, the, the, what they do uh, is just extraordinary, and thank goodness for them, each and every one of them. Yeah, well, my buddy would have made it. Well, Mike Higdon, I really appreciate you telling us this story, and we're glad to hear that you're doing well and your buddies are doing well, and um, uh, thanks for letting us know, because it can happen to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You're here. To, you're living proof. And I don't know how much gear that you would want to take. I had saws and axes and shoulders and heat, and it winds up that everything went wrong. And then when things turned around to go right, everything went right. Yeah, it's as easy as that. Mike, thanks yeah. so much. Glad to hear you're doing well. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. And we're up to news time now with Brian Medor. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. It's been a busy, busy morning. We have a few lines open there now. Now is your chance to give us a call. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. And we are back on VOCM Open Line. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. We're going to go now to Rosalind. You're on the air. Hello, Rosalind. Good morning, my darling. How are you this morning? I know. I'm not, I'm not into the Lighthouse Festival this time. I just, I, I, I'm sick of hearing about the carbon tax. And I know definitely they should take it off. Because, you know, like I got an old house here, Linda. Well, I'm old anyhow, but I got an old house too. It was built in the 1800s. And there's no way I could put in a heat pump or anything else. It, no matter how much money they put out there. There's no way. There's no place here to put one. And I burn all oil. I got an oil stove and I got an oil furnace. The oil stove is more, uh, well, I get more for me, more out of it than I would with the furnace, right? So I try to keep that one on as much as possible. But this carbon tax, I think, is crazy. I mean, it's not only me. There's hundreds of people around me that is burning oil. And, they, you know, they can't do nothing else. So I, I, I'm hoping and praying to God that someone like caught in there and get that carbon tax took off altogether. Because not only that, it's making our groceries more expensive. The trucks got to come in, there, you know, with the, with the diesel and the gas and everything. And this uh, rebate that they're uh, providing, does that help in any way? That is, that's not even worth talking about. Can you imagine I got a 200-gallon tank? Can you imagine how much it would if, if I let it run to the how much that would cost to fill that up? Uh, uh, the rebate is a drop in the bucket. It's not even sensible. The dollar, what do I get? A uh, hundred and eighty dollars or something? That would only call, <laughs> would only pay buddy for coming there to put the oil in. <laughs> Right. It's crazy. It is absolutely nuts, mate. I mean, it's not only me. It's everybody around me. I know people around here that paid three and four and five thousand dollars for oil last year. Can you imagine what it's going to be this year. And I, f- I suppose if you were to supplement with a few baseboard heaters, uh, you'd have to rewire the house, would you? I or what? E- I, yes, exactly. I can't even do that. Yeah. Because when I moved in there, they had uh, baseboard heaters in there, but then in order to keep that going, I would have had to get the house all rewired and everything else. So I had so much done, but enough to put in, uh, like, the oil stove and the furnace and whatever, and that's all, I, you know, that's all I could hook up to. But anyhow, no, it's crazy, my dear. There's no way. 
I like the, the, the old saying going now does to eat or heat. <laughs> and I'll have to choose between one or the other. Yeah, uh, a lot of people in that uh, that unfortunate position, I must say. Um, well, that's where well, senior, most people around here are seniors, mate. And, you know, they can't afford that stuff. They can't afford, half the people can't afford to eat. Thank God I got good friends that helped me along the way. And, uh, you know, they, they're they really good to me. They uh, pick up stuff. I got one friend that, in, uh, you know, she two, actually. Wherever they go, they'll phone me and say, Roz, what do you want, you know? Which is good, I must say. Thank God for that. But there's hundreds of people around me that haven't got that same privilege, you know. But it's bad enough for me. I know my oil is going to cost the horrendous price. I got one little heater here, uh, just a little small heater that I plug in in the mornings to warm my feet while I'm doing a few other things around the kitchen. <laughs> But yeah. Anyhow, how are you doing? And a, uh, good. <laughs> um, you know, and that's not uh, necessarily a solution. And that can be dangerous, too, if you leave that and, you know, it catches to something. Or... No, it's not that kind of a heater. Like, if this one happened to done my cat, and I would like to just say if she happened to tip it over, it would automatically shut off. Mm-hmm. There's not a heater that is just a little small heater, right? And uh, I don't have any I don't have any uh, ducts from the furnace. I don't have any going upstairs. This is the old two-story house, mate. And there's only five ducts in the whole house. Now, it, the stove warms it up. It's really nice, I must say. But it's going to be costly. It's, like I said, it's going to be eat or heat. <laughs> Anyhow, this, I, I, I don't understand this carbon tax because it's not doing anything for the environment, I don't think. Just like, you know what, Linda, let me tell you something. A lo- you go out and buy a loaf of bread. They took off the little plastic tags off the bread and put these little cardboard ones on there in a plastic bag. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Can you tell me what sense there is in that? <laughs> and the little, ca- the little cardboard things is on there. Uh, when I get a loaf of bread... And take once you take that off, you can't put it back on. So I got a few of the plastic ones saved up, so I put a plastic one back on there. Yeah, I got a bread box with a few of the plastic ones in there that I grab yeah. every now and again. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Hold on to them, yeah. Uh, Rosalind, yeah, oh, yes, man. I ahead. appreciate your call this morning. Yes, Thank you. I was you. going to say I won't take up any air time. I just wanted to bitch on the carbon tax because I think it's crazy, and I'm not the only one. That's for sure. And then the bank, the Bank of Nova Scotia closing down here is another thing. Now, I mean, if that closes down here, our closest one is like John Norman said, is in Clarenville, which is an hour and a half from Bonavista and an hour from Kingscove. So, you know, it is, uh, it is crazy. I don't know what they're trying to prove. But anyhow, that's something else. We'll Rosalind, end with. I appreciate your call this I'd morning. I'd be six feet under by the time that comes in effect, mate. Who knows? <laughs> oh, don't say that. Uh, uh, 80 years old now, mate. I haven't got that much longer. Oh, oh my. Rosalind, yeah. appreciate your call this morning. Thank right, you. Thank you, and I appreciate you taking my call, and I thank you. God bless, and you have a great day, Linda. You too. Okay, there. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Rosalind and beautiful Kings Cove, the Athens of the North. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. We're going to talk about the Work Boots program when we come back right after this. And uh, we're into the final hour of the program. If there's anything on your mind or anything you want to add, uh, by all means, now is the chance to do so. We're going to go now to Al here on the air. Hi, Al. Hey, how's it going there, Linda? Good. How are you? Oh, I tell you, you don't want me to be honest with that one. (laughs) 
<laughs> but anyway, I'm dealing with the bureaucracy, basically, and I'm t- calling to talk uh, about the uh, this little work boots program that uh, that Patty keeps talking about, actually, and he's the reason why I knew about it. Because uh, I am a gentleman who's on assistance. I'm actually uh, one of those. They would call me homeless, but I'm actually fairly content where I am. I'm out in the bush. Uh, uh, I was kind of worried up until a couple of days ago uh, because I didn't have any heat. Uh, but now a local business, uh, actually, I don't know if he wants me to mention. But anyway, Tucker's Home Improvements bought me a wood stove. So now I'm nice and cozy, uh, which is good. So you're uh, in like a, a, a little cabin or something like that? I have a motor home that ah. I, I got way, I'm, I'm I'm about an hour outside of town, but I, I've got a nice hidden away little spot. Uh, nobody bothers me because I get a few hunters coming through every once in a while. But I mean, I've, I've spent years in the bush and uh, I'm fairly comfortable this. I mean, I hear people on the news and talk about being stuck in shelters and it just breaks my heart because, uh, I mean, that's not a place to be healthy. That's not a place. I mean, if you're down and out, that's the last thing you need. Uh, is all the the foolishness that goes on with that that part of the world. Uh, I mean, so if anybody is capable and able to stay in the bush and make themselves comfortable, it is definitely a better option. Uh, But, I mean, that said, uh, the the reason why I'm actually homeless, I mean, if we're going to get into the bureaucracy of it, I was renting a room in town uh, from a friend of a friend. uh, And uh, then a social assistant said, okay, well, we'll pay your rent if you get a note. So I I got him and said, hey, I need a note for social assistance. And he had no problem signing that. So I gave it to them, and they said, no, that's not good enough. You have to be on the lease. So that's basically the difference between somebody renting you a room and getting yourself put on the lease. I mean, it's it's fairly easy to find somebody to rent you a room because, uh, I mean, if things go sideways, they can kick you out. Uh, if you're on a lease, you've got a whole lot more rights. Uh, and it's just, it's just another stumbling block, basically. So uh, the the guy I was renting from, I mean, he had no problem renting me a room, but uh, it was – no. that's basically like marriage. That's a commitment, <laughs> you know? I, paperwork with lease, so so basically that that could, then they wouldn't they wouldn't pay my rent, so I ended up in the situation where I am now. So I, I mean I'm an hour outside of town, far away from where there are, is work, uh, and I have a dog as well, so it's really hard for me to find a place that will take a dog. Uh, so here here I sit. So to the work boots program uh, that I, I called to talk about earlier. Uh, I've been I've been dealing with the same sort of bureaucracy with these people. Uh, I filled out all the paperwork last Thursday. I mean, I don't have a hundred bucks for a pair of work boots, uh, so the the check would be the money would be for 125 bucks. I landed some work there last week, uh, and the guy's like, "Yeah, okay, start right away." I need work boots. I can't afford the money to buy some. Uh, you know, I've been putting every cent I have into buying tools to cut wood. I mean, I'm cutting all my wood by hand with a bow saw. Uh, you know, I'm fine. I'm fine living like that, but I do need to – my money goes towards basically survival things for now. Uh, and I don't even have 100 bucks to go buy a pair of boots. So I applied last week. Uh, to to get on this program, I did everything they wanted me to do. Uh, filled out all everything. They even sent my paperwork back because there was one form that I hadn't signed. So everything was good as of say Thursday. You know, I had it in by Thursday morning, but say Thursday afternoon. I mean, everything was done, crossed, 
And I said, look, I, I can work all weekend. I can work tomorrow. I can go to work right away. As soon as I can get a pair of boots, I can go to work. So everything's done except for the processing. So go through Thursday, Friday, Friday afternoon. I talked to him. No, it's not processed yet. So I missed out on those two days. Then the weekend, I called yesterday and, uh, oh, what is it they wanted yesterday? Which, which, which seventh hell of bureaucracy was, do I, oh, they wanted a letter uh, from my employer. <laughs> this is what they, they, they hadn't told me about until yesterday morning. So I finally actually got that. Uh, but the, the letter, he's fed up with me, obviously, because I work labor. Uh, I work construction jobs. I work this, that, and the other thing, all, all sorts of different things. But the type of work that I work is not like getting a government job where you're going to have an interview, you know, where it's, oh, here's your, here's your formal interview, and here's what our offer is. It's kind of like, all right, get into work and start, and if you're any good, we'll keep you around. You do your paperwork when you get here. It's that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. It, it's not formal. You know, so they want me to get a, a formal job offer, right? I, but, but the thing is, is that I did get an email from this guy who wants to give me work. He's fed out with me. I have to be there by 1230 today. I don't have a job. I don't think I'm going to make it. Uh, I've been arguing. I even called the minister's uh, office this morning and put a complaint in against, because now they're they're so fed up with me calling because I, I'm fed up with their bureaucracy and I can't get a straight answer from anybody there. Uh, and, and now they just hang up. So I just called the minister's office, and now the minister's secretary, I guess that's who it is. I'm not sure. I'm saying that it is. she is apparently calling, trying to deal with these people. Uh, but, I mean, my whole point is that just there's so much bureaucracy. And, I mean, I'm bipolar. I have my mental illness, but I've traveled the world. I can kind of get along. I would hate for somebody who, say, in a way more stressful situation that I'm in, like, say, somebody living in a shelter where they're worried about their stuff being stolen or beat up or you've got to deal with people on all sorts of drugs and uppers, downers, all-arounders. You don't know who's around. I mean – in that situation and trying to deal with this amount of bureaucracy, I don't even see how it's possible. I'm out in the wilderness in the woods with my dog, a wood stove going. It's mellow. I mean, I am in probably one of the nicest places you could be on the planet. I have that going for me, and it still frustrates me to no end. So, I mean, I, I it's just... They, they, yeah, they, they can put as many programs out as they want, but if they make them just so confusing and so convoluted to get held, like I said, I thought everything was done. Nobody mentioned anything about this letter, and apparently my email that I got from Buddy is not good enough for them, right? Uh, so here I said, you know, I can't so what, go to work. what is over, the letter over, they're looking for exactly? <laughs> well, I, 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 right now, they won't even talk to me anymore because they're fed up with dealing with me. So like I said, the, the secretary from the minister's office, from Jerry Burns, it's his, his, uh, that's his little pet project, I suppose. That's what the Internet tells me. Uh, so I called the office and said, hey, this is what I'm dealing with. I mean, it just doesn't work. I mean, I can juxtapose it to, say, British Columbia. I mean, I was living in B.C. My boat, my boat sank there about a year ago. I lost everything I owned, and I had to get on assistance in B.C. The difference there, you get everything is computerized, but, I mean, once a year, you can request some clothing. or You can request this or request that. You can't do it all the time. Uh, but you, there are it's set in there, you know, so you, you can. Once a year, you can get a clothing allowance for, you know, for things. I mean, here it's, yeah, I mean, I appreciate the 125 bucks to get a pair of boots, but the amount of bureaucracy, I can guarantee you since last Thursday, dealing with this, with the amount of people who have had to handle this, 
that 125 bucks is probably taking costing the taxpayer two or three thousand. When you add in all the wages for all the people involved in the process, it would have been way cheaper for them just to go, oh, dude's on assistance. Okay, has he gotten boots this year? No. Boom. Here you go. Don't ask for any more for 12, 11, like that's way cheaper. It's way better. And I would be, if I had the money for the boots, I would have worked all weekend. I would have worked two days last week. I would have worked all weekend and I would be at work for a second day right now instead of fighting with the government. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, I tell you what, Al, uh, Dave uh, wants me to put you on hold because he wants to tell you something. Yes, pass, ma'am. pass along a bit of information and we're getting a couple of emails now. Um, uh, with some suggestions so uh, just if you don't mind I'm going to put you on hold the next person you're going to talk to is Dave off the air okay okay perfect thank you ma'am all right Al all the best okay cheers all right putting him back on hold there you go David uh, we are going to go now to another David hello hello Dave uh, good morning how are you uh, good morning good morning uh, thank you for allowing me to speak this morning yes a couple of things I wanted to comment on. Uh, first was the bill uh, C-69 by Daniel Smith. Uh, spent uh, several years trying to win the case in Supreme Court. And as you know, uh, it was a, a victorious win for Alberta. And I'm very surprised that we haven't heard much from this province. It, it applies to uh, 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 Trudeau's overreach on provinces and their responsibility. I mean, uh, Trudeau has controlled, uh, trying to control Alberta and Newfoundland with the development of the oil offshore and with Alberta onshore, of course. But uh, I'm surprised uh, I haven't heard any from the Premier how it impacts on this province. And Alberta seems to think, and they're they're pretty sure they're going to go full steam ahead with their oil industry. And Trudeau is going to have the butt out of uh, their oil industry. I don't know why we, we're not hearing more from the provincial premiers, but I think it's a great victory for her, and it was great for Canada and great for Newfoundland. So I'm hoping to hear something from our government on how it impacts with our offshore, because I'm sure with the uh, with the investors in offshore, they've been they've been shy with the amount of the, with the amount of legislation that's been laid on them, with particularly with the environment. I mean, uh, I'm sure our government can put together an environmental plan that meets the carbon neutral by 2050, the same as Alberta, and that will meet our provincial needs. The other issue I wanted to talk to uh, was the situation with the uh, the lack of housing and uh, in uh, St. John's and Newfoundland here, particularly. Uh, I think the you know the provincial government. Uh, is falling down on the job in two or three main areas. First thing, if you're an investor in Newfoundland, uh, basically, you, whether a young couple or whoever, want to build a house to rent to help out the housing situation, you have an ineffective landlord tenancy actor. It's understaffed. They're good staff, but they're understaffed. And for people who don't realize it, uh, you know, for various reasons, if the landlord decides to evict a tenant, the system doesn't work here. And uh, basically, if someone fails to pay their rent, for example, uh, you give them, uh, after five days, you give them a notice. And if they don't leave after 10 days, you've got to go to the landlord tenancy board. That takes um, a month. If you're, if it, it takes a month if you're lucky to get a hearing. Dave, uh, I want to explore this a little bit more with you, but we're up to newscast. Do you mind if I put you back on hold and we'll continue the conversation? 
Sure. Okay, just one moment now. Uh, and we are, we're up to news time with Brian Medore. Uh, this is VOCM Open Line. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. And we're into the last half hour of the show. Now is your opportunity to give us a call if there's anything you want to raise or anything you want to respond to. Before uh, the news with uh, Brian Medore, we were speaking with Dave, and he was talking about the housing problem and uh, what he calls the Ineffective Landlord Tennessee Act. Uh, Dave, um, sorry to uh, interrupt your thoughts there, but, uh, yeah, let's explore that a little bit. Well, you know, the situation, uh, many listeners may not be aware of it, but uh, it's an it's a, a process that really doesn't work for most landlords. Uh, I've been I've been a landlord for many years. By the time, as I said previously, uh, if a tenant decides not to leave after notice, it re- it takes sometimes. It used to be a couple of months, but now I think it's down to about a month to wait for a hearing. So after the hearing, let's say you win the hearing, then you got the the hearing gives a court order for the person to leave, but that doesn't happen. You've got to wait then for a, for a sheriff's office to come and evict the person. So all this takes too long, and you're basically not receiving any rent. So if you're an established landlord, you can probably take the hit. But if you're not, and, I, and I've spoken to a lot of people, they get into this two or three times, and they say, that's the end of it. I'm never going to rent again. So, you know, if they cleared that part of it up, it would really help with people deciding whether they want to invest in renting. And we've heard this a few times. We've heard this a few times over the years. So do you think that's what's uh, preventing certain people from from renting uh, spaces and going maybe the Airbnb route? That's part of it. The other part is... Uh, basically, the damages. There's no effective, easy way of collecting the damages. And damages can range up to $10,000 for your apartment. That's hard to believe, but it does happen. That's one issue. The other the other issue is, is the federal government. Uh, people may not realize that if you're not a larger company or a smaller person, maybe rent one or two properties, the capital gain tax in Canada is horrific. It's 50%. Now, down in the U.S., is they have an exemption of a couple of hundred thousand, and then I think it's about 20 or 30 percent. Here is 50 percent. So a landlord pays his tax all the way through, municipalities, provincial, and everyone else. Federal government has nothing to do with your apartment, but they take 50 percent at the end of your capital gain. So the incentives for someone to invest in rental properties is not there. So they go to Airbnb where it's easy money, you know. Naturally. Uh, yeah, why wouldn't you go that route? You know what I mean, given all that uh, difficulty. So what uh, what changes can be made? What you know, what would you like to see done to make it easier for people who have properties and are willing to rent to do so? Well, the first thing is you've got to clean up the legislation with the Landlord Tenancy Board and staff it properly. That's the first thing, that there's a quick turnaround time. And, you know, there is people going from apartment to apartment that don't pay, and then create damage. There's, you know, under the Privacy Act, I don't know how we make it out, but there should be, we, even with the Landlord Tenancy Board, there should be a list of these people that someone don't fall into it. Because if you do, and you're stuck for seven or $8,000, you're not going to stay in the rental game very long. You know, it's, it's, uh, that's part of it. And the other thing is 
staffed properly. You know, you have a problem. I'm sure the landlord tenancy board is doing as quick as they can. But uh, I'm sure they could turn this around within a week or two, a week or so, that you can have a hearing. Effective way that their sheriff's office acts on it right away. I think in Alberta they have special sheriffs that are put aside that basically deal with landlords uh, exclusively in departments, getting people out. That kind of thing needs to happen. And a break on the taxes if they're serious. You know, that's two main, you know, they're main things. And the other big issue with... uh, Anyone getting into the rental businesses, the down payments is 25%, which is pretty significant. If they want to encourage people to have a, an investment property, lower, lower it down to 5% or something like that, where they can get in and they have enough money to float the apartment, right? Um, I've uh, heard over the years uh, a lot of people talk about the Landlord Tenancy Act and, and say that it's heavily weighted towards uh, towards the tenants' rights. Um, is is there um, any tweaks that can be made in that um, realm? Well, well, you know, it it uh, I think the. The landlord is always seems to be the one that's targeted. That 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 you hear the news that somebody got kicked out or someone did this, you know. Uh, it basically, uh, it has to be weighed equally towards each. But basically, uh, a lot of times, uh, like for example, a tenant has to give a month's notice to get out, to leave, to decide to leave. A landlord has to give three months. You know, it's it's kind of strange that one gives one month and a landlord has to give three months. There's things like that all through the act that puts more weight on the tenant, you know. And uh, basically, uh, if the tenant wants to make a problem for you, he can make a problem pretty easy, you know. This is why people have gone to Airbnb. It's There's just too many headaches. But the other side of what, what has happened here with the housing is and I don't understand where the provincial government's judgment is to. We only had a vacancy rate of 1% or 2% in the province. Long before Minister Byrne decided to bring in thousands of people and increase the population. So I don't know what they expected to happen. I'd love to know what these people were told. Where are they going to get houses? Where are they going to come here? Where are they going to get jobs? Where was the fairness? I heard the... Uh, the person with the, uh, I don't know the proper title now, but the person that's headed the, uh, the, the, for new immigrants in Canada. And they blasted us here because these people are in hotels. You know, God help them. You know, they're, they, they, have, they don't have jobs. They don't have houses. You know, what are we after doing? You know, it's, it's uh, I suppose they see it in hindsight now, but where was the thinking, you know? I don't think it was fair to these people at all. Just not, you know, I I don't know what they're doing now. I don't know how many more thousands of people are still in hotels here. But they created a situation here that's really intolerable. You know, uh, poor people, you you advertise a house for rent, and within a half a day, you've got a couple of hundred people calling you. You know, it's uh, (laughs) it's, a... you know the situation better than I do, but, you know, they, they had to see this coming, you know. Where, where are the houses going to come from, you know? Dave, I appreciate your call this morning and, and your perspective on this. I'd like to hear what others have to say. Really appreciate your time. Oh, well, you're quite welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. All righty.
I know. Bye-bye. And if you have any thoughts on what Dave's had to say, uh, by all means, do give us a call. Uh, We're up to another break, but when we come back, we hope to speak with you. Now's your chance to give us a call. And uh, we have some lines open, so if there's anything you wanted to uh, add to the show, by all means, now is your chance to do so. Robert, you're on the air. Hello, Robert. Hello. Hi. How you doing? Good. Good. Nice to hear you on again. Thank you. Uh, I had a couple of things I was going to mention to you there. One was the um, the bank's closing down, right? Right. Uh, I'm not surprised to hear that. Uh, we're, we're, we're a dying province, whether we want to believe it or not. I mean, the government don't want to be in, in some of those rural areas. They want, to, they want to get us out. Like, you take over on Fogel Island. God puts the people over Fogel Island. Nice place, beautiful over there. But the, the people want that shut down. They want Bell Island shut down. And, and you keep on going. They want to shut down. And they won't come out and say it, but they'll turn up to eat. Am I right or wrong? Well, who wants it shut down? I'm not following you. The government wants to shut down. The, the government, government wants to shut it down, so they're telling Scotiabank to close banks? Yeah, it's a closing that, yeah. Sure they are. Okay. Uh, I mean, you uh, over over Fogel Island. I mean, the government don't be over there with hospitals, over there and police forces and that, right? Down in Burjo, same thing. They, they don't be down in places. They got no, no RCMP down in Burjo. And then there for probably two years. If they, if they want an RCP officer, they call Stephen Mill, and Stephen Mill will go down there. Never known before. Right. Well, I right. mean, that's a that's a separate issue, if you know what I mean. Um, I mean separate issue. If you're taking away the services, well, what happens? Yeah. You're taking, away, you're, taking, you're taking the police force away from it, you know, and then something else will go, something else will go. The people can't stay there. they got to leave. Or find solutions, right? I suppose. Oh yeah, I guess we don't have to. Solutions. We don't have to rely on uh, all of these, you know, particular services. If if the services are being pulled for economic reasons, then we have to find alternatives. Yeah, the alternative is for people to pack your bags and leave. And that's what the government is trying to tell people. They won't come and tell them right, right, like they want to tell them, but they'll freeze them out. Linda, you see, you must see that, my love, don't you? Well, I mean, if 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 something is not economically viable, then some people might say the writing is on the wall. But others might yeah. say, you know what? I live here. I'm going to fight to stay here, and I'm going yeah. to, you know, ma- create opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I've heard all that too. But as like like no doctors in the towns, different towns, and all that. You know, doctors are going and. Virgil or going down these places, right? Small places. They, they, they want to be in St. John's. Right? Right. You know, it's, them days is over with now. One time one time we had a doctor every community. No more of that, no more. That's all gone. All fell by the wayside. Yeah, in part because our uh, population has uh, dipped so perilously low and the demographics are all off kilter. But, uh, you know, um, again, it's it's things that governments and communities and individuals are all working on. You know, it's just just that uh, 
I don't know. It's just that, you know, to me, it seems like everything is cut, cut back. Like the government cutting back on this and cutting back on that. I mean, the government got lots of money. One thing about it, our, our government got lots of money. A politician one time, he was a minister. He said, we got lots of money, he said, but we don't tell the public, he said. Because he said they'd be after it. And, and he was true. You take now, right now, there's no, no money for this. No, wait till the election comes up. They be paving, they be paving people's driveways. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. oh, you that. You wait and see now when the next election comes out. See the money slashing around. Yeah, yeah. So many mean for this and so many mean for that and something else, right? Well, you're not, you're not wrong on that, Robert. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm right on it. I, yeah. I've been around, I've been around politics and seen a lot of uh, operates. They're saving their money right now till the, till the time comes because the liberals now right now are down in the polls. They look like they're going to lose. And I think it's time for the liberals to, to, to throw in the towel anyway, right? It's time, I, I'm, I'm a liberal. I've been a liberal all my life. But, uh, you know, it's time to change. Time for change. And you got, got to change some of these guys that's in there now. Time for them to move on now. And then a new crowd, crowd comes in. But they're not going to be no better than the crowd we got in. Don't, don't think that. Don't think they're going to be any better than what crowd we got in there now. They're doing the same thing. Because they, they learn from the best, eh? All you right. That? They Robert, learn from the best. Appreciate your I, call this morning. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, it's. Uh, be no, be no difference in the next. If we all vote, we all go conservative next time around. And God help us, we get Pierre, Pierre Pollier, where his name is. We're, we're finished. Poor old Trudeau, he did give us a bit of extra money, but that's all the extra money he, he give us. Don't get, you know, you don't get none of that. You got to take it from you. Well, the extra money is our own anyway. So, um, Robert, yeah, I know, uh, what they, but yeah, and that's true. But it's up to them how to add it, pass out that money. All right. Appreciate your call right. this morning. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All righty. Okay, then have a good day now. You too. Now, Patty, get better and get back. All righty. Give you a break. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, your thoughts on what uh, Robert's had to say. Give us a call. Dave, I'm looking for a little direction here. Uh, should I go? T- which one should I go to next? Okay. Uh, Kevin is on line three. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Kevin. Kevin there. I can't hear anything. Is this pot up, David? Yes. Okay. No, Kevin's gone. I don't know where Kevin's gone. I'm going to have to drop him. Uh, Kevin, give us a call back if you can. Um, uh, Anyway, we've had quite the uh, conversation on uh, VOCM Open Line today. Uh, Getting a few emails as well. Judy says uh, on the uh, the bank clothing, closing question, she says, uh, just think back to new federal budget implementation of extra taxing on financial institutions. Think how banks protecting, how, th- think about how banks are protecting their profit margins is uh, what she says. Um, another person emails to say, all provincial people need to stand together in respect to the subject matter. Allow all present customers everywhere to take their business to another financial institution well i mean we have that uh as uh, consumers we all have that um uh, ability anyway um and we've been getting some inquiries about um 
Al, who was asking about the workbook program, I think there may be an update on that and uh, some people offering him a little bit of help when it comes to uh, accessing um, uh, workbooks so that he can uh, get a labor job in and around the metro region. Uh, so um, those are some of the things that we have been uh, getting some information on via email. We are going to go now to Kevin. Hi, Kevin. I think we lost you first time. Yes, uh, have you got me now? I've got you now. Okay, good. Yeah, uh, I'm calling about uh, in regards of why people are having a hard time getting rental properties or, or getting rent, uh, rent or uh, apartments. Or uh, one of the reasons is because of the damages that pe most people does to them. Not all of them, but most people do, and that's why people are now turning to being bees. Right. Uh, have you rented in the past? Yes, I did. And what kind of experiences did you have? I'm telling you, the last one I had, it was unreal. I had about $7,000, $8,000 for damage by time, plus a month and a half rent that we got paid for, first or last. And do you charge um, a damage deposit up front or anything like that? Yes, but what damage deposit I got didn't cover any of it, as far as I'm concerned. What kind of damage was that? Well, I had two doors, two doors destroyed. I had a new stove, not a year old, beat up, kicked in on the side. And I mean, not just the bottom part, the top part where the elements and all that are too. So someone tried to tell me, or she tried to tell me at the time, that, that they were moving furniture. Ma'am, listen, I moved a lot of people in my day. There's no way that that was done with a piece of furniture. That was done with somebody's boot. And so and you were left uh, holding the bag on that. Yes, I did. Do you? Because how can you get? How can you get anything from someone that's in social services? Right. You only have to apply for it, and you, you might get it from. You won't get it. Take my word for it. You won't get nothing from, from, from social services in regards of damages that somebody else done. And that's why I turned to B&Bs. Gotcha. Do you have um, more than one property that you're renting? or? No, I got rid of that property, and now I got, I got one now that I'm, I'm going to do as a B&B. &B. Mm -hmm. I almost got it finished. Right. And that's all it's going to be. Because I'll tell you something now. In order to get, if I was deciding to rent it, there's the only way it's going to be rented. First month... Last month, a damage deposit. Up front. And that's going to be difficult then for some people to come up with. That's right. But whose fault is that, though? Whose fault is that? That's the question I need to, for someone to answer to me. And this lady that I helped out, I went the extra mile for this lady. I went and got furniture. My daughter helped me get stuff for this lady to help her out. And this is what she done to me at the end of the day. It hurts. It hurts more than hurts. I'm telling you that now. Like, I was I was totally devastated. Because, like I said, first time I went down there, when, uh, well, Mark, she called me up and she said, I, I got uh, uh, wind coming into the door. Into the door, a new, a new door. I said, okay, I'll, I'll come down. So I tell her, when I was walking down the lane, here was, it wasn't even the same door that was in the door box. They beat the door up, broke the glass of it, and throwed the door away and put another door in it, but it wasn't even the right door. And that's when I discovered about the stove. 
And did you have um, trouble evicting that person, or? No, she left, and 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 like I said, left me. And then when I got in there to see everything, it was just unreal. And and, and the mess she left there, and the garbage she left there, and everything else. Why not? It cost me more money at the end of the day. So that was a powerful lesson for you. You better believe it. And I'll tell you something now. I'm encouraging people that got rental properties to give up renting and go on B&Bs. Because it's not worth their time. So how can... It's not worth their time. How can government address that then? How can government... Number one. Number one. In my eyes, what needs to happen... We need to have a landlord, uh, a list, a, a red flag list for people like this, for one thing, that if you damage the property, you, uh, uh, I as a landlord should be able to go in on that there and listen and say, oh, so and so. But no, in the same time, you got to have the, have the evidence as well. Yeah. And one of the things is, like you said, having pictures when they move in and when they move out and put it away in a file. So that if anybody comes back to you and says, well, no, 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 listen, I got it here. I got it all here, right here. Yeah, lesson learned. Number two, Kevin, government, when it comes to social services people, and not all of them are like it. Now, don't get me wrong. Not all of them are like it because I know people that are good. Yeah. But the experience that I've had with this, uh, no, I wouldn't do it no more but right. without these criteria. Kevin, we're completely out of time. I have to leave it there. Uh, thank you very much for your call. Okay. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. And we are up to news time. News at noon with Brian Medore. Uh, news talk this afternoon. Brian Callahan will be hosting. Thank you very much, Brian. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.